Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Woodside Community Church. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, good morning, likewise, to those of you who are joining us uh, online and Facebook Live. It's, it's good to be with you all on this last Sunday of 2020. You know, I, I always find it to be a difficult task to preach either the last sermon of the year or the first sermon of the new year, because it always feels like, how do you wrap up a whole year with exhortation from God's word? And likewise, how do you establish a vision for the new year? And this year's task is doubly difficult for us because Pastor Mike and myself get to do that in the shadow of 2020. But I don't trust in the sufficiency of my own words this morning or my insight and creativity to be able to make an emotional or psychological appeal to you or to try to impress you. Rather, I trust in God's word that the simple and right preaching of the ancient text would be sufficient to feed us and lead us to Christ this morning. Uh, we'll be in the book of Ruth this morning. We're doing an overview. I want to give you an illustration that might help us understand something in the book of Ruth, because I think for us as Americans, it's hard to understand lineage and ancestors and descendants. So I want to give you this little illustration. In the year 2008, there was a man who ran for president. His name was John McCain. John McCain was actually not born in the United States. He was born in Panama. And according to the Constitution, some people challenged that and said John McCain does not have a right to be president. He does not have, um, he doesn't have natural born citizenship. And this was a big deal. How many people were aware that that happened? Almost nobody, maybe Rick knew, okay. But almost nobody knew about this. And what uh, the Senate had to do was that they had to pass a resolution. And the resolution was just one statement. We believe John McCain is a natural born citizen and is eligible to, to run for president of the United States. That happened, that was a big deal because people said, hey, this guy cannot be president of the United States. He was born in the Panama Canal Zone, where um, his dad was stationed as a military officer. And the Senate, with unanimous vote, said that he's eligible. In case it ever went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ha would have a precedent from the Senate that said he can be president. So you need that little thing to understand the Book of Ruth, because lineage and descendancy becomes a big deal at the end of the Book of Ruth. So turn with me to the Book of Ruth. Today, I want to pr present an overview of this book. Although it's a very small book of the Bible, it is thematically and morally, culturally, historically very, very vast. So I can't go, go through it verse by verse in an exhaustive way. So instead, we'll look at the various characters and see them develop through the flow of the story. And I'll try to take it apart as we go along, and then we'll put it back together at the end. I have five points for you this morning. Point number one, the bitterness of Naomi. Point number two, the kindness of Boaz. Point number three, the redemption of Ruth. Point number four, the restoration of Naomi. Point number five, the lineage of Boaz and Ruth. Let me read a short section from the book of uh, Ruth, and then we'll pray, then we'll begin. I'll just read the first section, which uh, Mike already read, but I want you to notice some things here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalan and Shilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Both Mahalan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless your word. Lord, it will feel like a race to get through four chapters of this and hit the proper highlights to make the proper points that we need this morning. So Lord, we pray that your spirit would superintend this uh, exercise, that your word would go forth in the power of your spirit. Lord, set aside the human messenger that Christ might shine through this text. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. 
For the sake of context, here's what you need to understand about the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth takes place towards the end of the period of the Judges. Uh, The last one-third of the book of Judges is all about God's people living by what was right in their own eyes. You have Samson, one of the last judges, and he had an appetite for alluring women. He said to his parents, get this woman for me because she is right or pleasing in my eyes. The last five chapters of Judges had this constant refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So it's in this time period that the story of Ruth takes place. Here are the characters in the opening. Elimelech. His name means my God is king. His wife, Naomi, her name means comfort. They have two sons, Mahalan and Chilion, and their names mean sickly and destruction. The circumstance of the story is that because of a famine in the land of Bethlehem, the family goes and sojourns in the country of Moab. Moab was probably on the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, Moab as a people have an ill reputation among the Israelites. The Moabites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot, the result of incest with his daughters. The Moabites to this point have had several hundred years of enmity, war, and political rivalry with the Israelites. So Moab is not a good place. And in the course of time in Moab, Elimelech dies. His sons take Moabite wives, and in the course of time, his sons die also. So Naomi is left without her husband and her sons. And it's just her and her her daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, in a foreign land. Ruth is the protagonist of this story. The movement and the action of the story highlight Ruth, but there's another story going on in the background. It's about Naomi. Now, if you've ever watched a well-written sitcom, I used to like Seinfeld for the, the, the crazy episodes they would have. And in each episode, there's not just one story going on. There's multiple stories going on. And in the end of the episode, all those stories will converge together. Well, Ruth is, is like that. You could think of it like this. Ruth is an active main character, but Naomi is a passive main character. So let's begin with point number one, the bitterness of Naomi. Naomi became a widow in the land of Moab, and then she is bereaved of her two sons, leaving her with her two daughters-in-law. Now there's a glimmer of hope, which is that Naomi has heard that in God's providence, the famine has ended in the land of Judah, and she decides to return there. It's obviously better for her as a widow now to be among her own tribe and her own people rather than in a foreign land with virtually no means of provision and protection. Naomi urges her daughter-in-laws to return to their homes. Naomi tells them to return to the house of their mother. That's in verse number eight. Return to the house of your mothers. She blesses them, asking God to give them rest in the house of their husbands. So she is hopeful of a, of a prospect that they would get remarried. Whenever the Bible talks about a woman going to, to her mother's house, it is referring to a woman that is marriageable. That she's in the house of her mother is a way of saying that she's getting ready for marriage. That's always the case in the Bible every time you see it. She's a woman who could be married. On the other hand, whenever whenever the Bible refers to a woman going to the house of her father or being in the house of her father, it's a reference to a woman that is not marriageable. A few examples, uh, Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. Judah tells Tamar, his daughter-in-law, to return to her father's house and to wait until his son grows up and she can marry that son. Here, Ruth and Orpah are told to go to the house of their mothers. In uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, the woman says she desires to bring her beloved into the house of her mother. In Genesis 24, when Abraham's servant meets Rebekah and proposes a marriage between Rebekah and Isaac, the Bible says that she goes back to her mother's household and tells them. So that's, that's euphemism for, I want you to be remarried, Ruth and Orpah. Her daughter-in-laws declined to return back to their homes, but they want to go with her to Judah. She tells them again to turn back because she cannot provide more husbands for them. And even if she could, would they be waiting their lives away for that to happen? So what's clear here is that Ruth and Orpah feel an obligation to Naomi, and Naomi feels an obligation to them. Naomi says in verse number 13 that it is a great bitterness that the hand 
of the Lord has been against me because I'm not able to fulfill my family's obligations towards you. See, in this society, the obligations of marriage are mutual between the woman and the family. These women have left their homes, their people, their culture, their religious practices probably to be part of the family of Elimelech and Naomi. Here, and here we are at least 10 years into their lives together, and what do they have to show for it? All of these women have become widowed. Their provision and protection are threatened. None of them have any children. So the prospect of them having a legacy, a family, and a family name to continue is in danger. And that would have been unthinkable for the people of this day. Everything was about family and identity and legacy and an inheritance to these people. So what's in view here is that Naomi wants them to move on and not be subjected to her dire circumstances. She wants them to move on with their lives and get married someday. And in verse 14, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, but it says Ruth clings to her. Naomi urges Ruth to go back. Verse number 15, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. On this verse, I heard one pastor refer to Naomi as the worst evangelist in the Bible. What is she doing here? She's encouraging Ruth to go back to her gods and to her religious practices of Moab. Do you see the irony here that she blesses them in the name of God in verse 11, saying, may God give, grant you rest, and then she encourages them to go back to their gods. Scripture tells us in the Psalms that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And as a believing Jewish woman, Naomi would have known this to be true. And so when she says, return to your gods, that's a big problem. And I think it's indicative of the condition of her heart and her relationship with God, which we will uh, look at in a moment. But we see the faithfulness and the faith of Ruth, who refuses to sever herself from her mother-in-law. She refuses to go back to her people. And she refuses to go back to her gods. She attaches herself to Naomi, to the Jewish people, and to the land of Judah, uh, where they would go, and to the God of Israel. With her famous uh, speech here in verse number 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So she takes an oath before God and saying, this is my commitment to you. I'm going with you. I'm sticking with you. I am part of your people. So Ruth and Naomi come to Bethlehem and the whole town was stirred upon their return. Imagine seeing an old friend come visit church that you haven't seen in 10 years. You'd be stirred up. You would observe all the ways in which they've either stayed the same or changed in all the years that you've not seen them. And they say, is that Naomi? Think about everything that would have been different from Naomi the last time that they saw her in Bethlehem over 10 years ago. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She's probably aged considerably from worry and work and stress. And she's got Ruth with, with her, whom nobody has ever met before. And how do you explain this to everyone? Thankfully, I myself have lived a pretty boring life. So the bi biggest thing I have to explain to people of the last 10 years is that I have to say, I, well, I transitioned from the world of specialty coffee and now I run a church. Um, but just imagine Naomi having to tell the story of the last 10 years. Well, we tried to escape famine in Bethlehem, and uh, we went to Moab because we thought that there would be good opportunities over there, but then my husband died, and then my sons married Moabite women. Uh, yes, I know that in our tradition, we're supposed to only marry among our own Jewish people, but what could I do? My husband was dead, and I just wanted them to be happy. But then my two sons, sickly and destruction, you remember them as little boys, ended up dying too. And I feel so bad for my daughters-in-law, so young, 
and already widowed. And I don't know what's going to happen with them. And I know you know me as Naomi, which means comfort, but don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. I left Bethlehem full, and I've come back empty. She says God has testified against her and brought calamity upon her. And that's the underlying problem of the book, the spiritual condition of Naomi. She sees God as her accuser and her adversary. Consider four things that she says about the Lord. She says in verse 13, the hand of, of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 20, God has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, God has brought her back empty. He has testified against her and brought calamity upon her. Naomi believes in the sovereignty of God. She believes that God is in control and superintending the circumstances of her life. But what Naomi doesn't see is the kindness of God. And that's the struggle of this book. Is God kind to Naomi? That's what she has to grapple with. And can you see how Ruth is such an appropriate text for the year 2020? Would you be honest? How many of you have felt this way in 2020? You know that God is sovereign. You know that he is in control of COVID and vaccines and government overreach and the long-term effects of COVID and the election and the lockdowns and the shutdowns and the destroyed businesses and bad political policies and political upheaval and mental illness and isolation and nursing homes. You know that he is sovereign, but you're not seeing and experiencing the kindness and the goodness of God. How many would say that that's the case in your life? I believe that's the case in my life. We'll start to find that kindness in chapter two as we meet a man named Boaz. So point number two, the kindness of Boaz. Boaz is called a worthy man in chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Let's talk about Boaz. Boaz, uh, he's called a worthy man in the ESV. I think the King James is a little bit of a better translation. It calls him a mighty man of wealth. And the words that are used, there's two Hebrew words. It's, it's the word for greatness and a word for wealth. So he's a, a good translation would probably be a mighty man of wealth, although it could have various meanings. But the term has the idea that he's a strong man, an important man, a noble man, a wealthy man, possibly even the idea of being a decorated soldier. So he's more than just a worthy man, like a good man or an upstanding citizen. Secondly, we know that Boaz is a relative. He's of the clan of Elimelech, the late father-in-law of Ruth. Now, Ruth goes to glean barley in the field of Boaz. And to understand what's going on here, you have to understand the law of gleaning from Leviticus 19. The law gave that God gave to Moses says this about gleaning. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather your gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So in God's law, there is this built-in merciful social welfare opportunity, which is that if you have a field, you don't harvest your fields totally bare. You don't harvest over and over for every little scrap. You leave some for the poor and the sojourners among you. Those are two categories that Ruth qualifies for. She's poor and she's sojourning in a land in which she is a foreigner. And to get a sense of the nature and character of Boaz, look at verse number four. Boaz shows up to his field and the workers are working and he says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I love that. That's the kind of boss that Boaz is. He shows up to work and blesses his workers in the name of God. Boaz inquires from the manager of the field, who is this woman that's gleaning? 
and he finds out that it's Ruth, uh, which means that I think he would have known all of his workers, so an extra person in the field gleaning would have stuck out to him. So it is reported to Boaz by the man in charge that this young woman is um, a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi, and she has been gleaning since the early morning. Boaz approaches Ruth and tells her to continue gleaning in his field, to stay with his young woman, and that he's warned the young men that, that she's off limits. Don't bother her, don't harass her, don't flirt with her, and she can avail herself of the amenities of their operation, such as water and food and rest. So let's look at Ruth's response. Verse number 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before the Lord. Repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. Ruth says, why have you taken notice of me since I am a foreigner? See, even though the Mosaic law says that Ruth can glean from a field, she doesn't know if Boaz would happily follow that law. I guess many people in Boaz's position would oblige begrudgingly. Like, okay, you can go ahead and glean, but hurry up, we have work to do. Or can you come back tomorrow when we're done? Or don't be so greedy. Fill one bag and that's all you get. How many people would have allowed her to glean in their field and would have also allowed her to avail herself of food and water and rest? Boaz says that all that she's done for her mother-in-law has been disclosed to him. And he affirms the genuineness of Ruth's commitment to the God of Israel and blesses her, saying, the Lord repay you, for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is another person of status affirming the genuineness of Ruth's conversion, I believe. And Boaz invites her to eat with them, and he instructs his reapers to make it easy for her to glean, to pull out some of the grain they've already harvested and leave it for her. Verse 17 she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was, it was about an ephah of barley. So what Ruth collects and threshes out is a measure equivalent to about 20 quarts of grain. Think of it uh, as 10 two-liter bottles filled with barley grain. It's about 40 pounds of barley, scholars believe, that she collected. Ruth goes home to her mother-in-law, and she reports that she spent the day in the fields of Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so we see something here starting to change in Naomi's heart. She blesses Boaz in the name of God for his kindness. Moreover, Naomi realizes that, that the man is a close relative, one of their redeemers, she says. So let's talk about redeemers and redemption as we look at point number three, the redemption of Ruth. Ruth uh, Naomi says to Ruth in chapter three, verse one, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose women you were? Naomi is saying, what's our long-term plan here, Ruth? Are we okay using the social welfare system of gleaning leftover grain and produce perpetually? Is that what we're going to do next year as well? Naomi feels an obligation to Ruth in this matter. Ruth has left her family, her home, her culture, her customs to marry Mahalan, and she has a rightful expectation of having her husband protect and provide for her and bearing children, and that hasn't worked out. She's a widow now, and she has no resources. She's a foreigner in the homeland of her dead husband. So Naomi says, I want to seek rest for you. I want it to be well with you. This is not what you signed up for, Ruth. This is where it's important for us to remember that Boaz is a relative and a redeemer. 
So in the Law of Moses, there's a couple sections dealing with the concept of redemption. Leviticus 25, verse 25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. That deals with the redemption of property. Leviticus 25, 47 says, If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. This deals with redemption of someone who has sold themselves into indentured servitude. Deuteronomy 25.5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife to perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This deals with the obligation of the husband's brother to take his brother's widow. These laws may seem unpalatable to us in this age, but you have to remember, again, that to these people, things like inheritance, your legacy, your family name, your family line were of supreme importance so that it would be a great shame if someone did not oblige to accept these responsibilities in their family and extended family. All of these laws have some applicability to Ruth, for she is poor and needy and she is a widow. There is family property to be disposed with. And there is a provision in God's law for her situations. So we'll see how they are applied to Ruth. Um, Naomi tells Ruth to approach, approach Boaz to anoint herself, wash herself, to go down to the threshing floor because Boaz would be threshing his harvest that night. And she says that when he's eaten and drank and lays down to sleep, go lay at his feet. Verse number six. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, because you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, will, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. I want you to observe something that's going on here. In this time, in this culture, the idea that a woman would approach a man to proposition marriage and lay next to him while he's asleep, it would have been brazen, it would have been immodest, it would have been unthinkable. And I think some of that still applies today. Men, if you wake up and there's a woman lying next to you asking you to marry her, probably run. But you, you need to notice two things that of what Ruth does here. First, this is indeed a bold thing she does, but this is done in accordance with the law of God. The laws from Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25 have application to her situation, and she acts on them under the instruction of her mother-in-law. Secondly, I want you to notice her attitude and posture and how she does this. It's completely humble and putting herself in a position of need and lowliness. Ruth doesn't go to Boaz and confront him and yank his blanket off of him and say, hey man, don't you think I'm beautiful? Don't you have any feelings for me? So make a move, man. There's nothing like that going on. And anyone who tries to portray it like that, like Ruth is taking the charge and pursuing this man and confronting him, and she's going to be the one to pop the question, that is just 
sloppy and it's a very poor reading of the Bible. That's not accurate. That's not what's happening. And people ask about this passage also if Ruth sleeps with Boaz. And I think people think that way because otherwise the story is so simple and humble. It's almost boring that people need to spice it up. I don't believe they sleep together. Three reasons. Scripture says that she lay at his feet all night. There is a matter of a closer relative who might have greater obligation to Ruth. Um, so at the threshing floor, there's still uncertainty about what will happen. And Boaz has a concern about their reputation, which is why he sends her away early. So I, I, don't, I don't think there's anything scandalous going on here, although some people do. Ruth goes back home to her mother-in-law and awaits what will happen. Twice in this book, we see Ruth the Moabite is striving to obey the laws of God in whose word and knowledge she was not raised. I learned something studying Ruth. Um, there is a Jewish celebration called Shavuot, and it's the celebration of the giving of God's law. And you would think that they would read the passage of the Ten Commandments or the, the, peep, the Israelites at Sinai, or they read something from the prophets. But during that celebration, they read the book of Ruth. And the rabbis cannot figure out why that is. Well, I think it's because Ruth is an example of a woman who follows God's law in a time when God's own people declined to follow his law. The law of gleaning and the law of redemption we see in Ruth. And what's so significant about this is that this story, um, in, it's, it's in the time of Judges, and every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and Ruth is not. The book of Judges closes with a series of stories about how God's people established false tribal religion with idolatry, how the Levites who were in charge of the tabernacle and propagating the worship of God were failing and unfaithful, how men treated women carelessly and with contempt, how an incident of gang rape and homicide and bodily dismemberment sparks a national scandal which leads to a civil war. The last chapter of the book of Judges is all about the men of the tribe of Benjamin trying to get wives and they do so by seizing were stealing, kidnapping young women to be their wives because every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And by comparison, you have Ruth, the Moabite, not doing what's right in her eyes, but doing what is right in God's eyes. She could have gone back to her people, to her family, but she stays with her mother-in-law. She could have stayed home and not gleaned, but she relies on God's merciful law of social welfare. She could have tried to meet someone younger, the younger men who were reaping, but she follows God's law and seeks the redemption prescribed in God's law. So that is why I believe that Ruth is read during Shavuot when they celebrate the giving of God's law because Ruth is such an example of a woman who follows God's law and you see the mercy and the kindness packed into God's law. So Boaz had, so they have to figure out the situation of the Redeemer. In chapter four, we'll see how it turns out for Ruth. Uh, Boaz goes up to the gate and sat down there, chapter four, verse one, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they sat down. So they're gonna transact business here. Then he said to the redeemer, verse three, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. There was a kinsman, a relative, who was closer in relation to Elimelech than Boaz was, and he has a preferential position in the rights and responsibilities 
here. But Boaz presents the opportunity to him first. Hey, Naomi has a field. Do you want to buy it? And the man is like, great, jackpot, let's do it. And Boaz says, okay, well, well, there's one little catch. If you're going to exercise the right and the responsibility to redeem the field, it comes with this catch. You also get Ruth as your wife. And that's a deal breaker for him. The kinsman says, I cannot or I will impair my own inheritance. It's unclear what this means. And here's some possibilities. Either the man is not willing to take on the financial obligations to care for Ruth and by extension, Naomi. And perhaps he was a man of modest resources, unlike Boaz, who we know is wealthy. Or the idea that he would raise up children who in some way would be biologically his, but be regarded in the name of the... Um, in the name in name as children of Mahalan that might have been unappealing to him or some commentators believe that this man is already married and declined the condition of marrying Ruth it could be some combination of all of those factors too in any case this business is transacted openly transparently and publicly with the elders of Bethlehem as witnesses the people and the elders of Bethlehem bless Boaz saying we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Side note here, some commentators speculate whether or not Boaz, as a man of wealth and status in that society, was not already married. It would have been outside of the norm if Boaz was a, was a wealthy bachelor. And though it would have been rare, I tend to think that either Boaz was a bachelor or a widower, and here's why I think that. First, we're not told of any wife or kids of Boaz here or anywhere else in the Bible. Secondly, nowhere do Naomi and Ruth consider the hindrance of another wife in the picture. Third, the only hindrance that Boaz sees about himself is the fact that there's a closer relative and the fact that he's older than Ruth. Fourth, the people of Bethlehem bless Boaz by invoking Judah and Tamar. Judah, you may know, was a widower. Um, when he had a child with Tamar, unsuspectingly. And it's true that they invoke Rachel and Leah, who were the co-wives of Jacob, but they're not saying, Boaz, now you have two wives, just like Jacob. They're saying, may this one woman make your house as fruitful as those two wives were for Jacob. Oh, and also, I don't think he was married because he sleeps on the threshing floor with his pile of grain. What wife would allow her husband to do that? Not to come home at night because you're um, counting the profits of your harvest. So I don't believe Boaz to be married. So Ruth and Boaz are married and Ruth becomes pregnant and she has a baby. And think of everything Ruth received by being redeemed by Boaz. She goes from having Boaz as a charitable benefactor to having him as her husband. She goes from being a foreigner in Judah to being assimilated into their society on their terms. She goes from widow status to legal remarriage. She goes from childless to being a mother. She goes from destitution and dependence to great wealth. She goes from being an insignificant Moab, Moabite to a heroine of Judaism and Christianity, and all because Boaz redeemed Ruth. Although this book is the namesake of Ruth and she has been redeemed, there remains the underlying problem in the book, which is Naomi's relationship to God. So let's see how Naomi fares. Point number four, the restoration of Naomi. Verse number 14 of chapter four, the women say to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And all the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they called him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So let's deal first of all with verse 16 and 17. Naomi laid the child in her lap and became his nurse. It doesn't mean that Naomi had the biological ability to nurse this baby, but just that aside from Ruth, she was the primary caregiver for this child. And we see 
what we see is the intimacy between grandmother and grandchild is recognized and commemorated by the women of Bethlehem. They nicknamed the child Yalad ben Naomi, meaning the son Naomi brought forth. Now, obviously, they know it's not her son, so this is all in joy and good fun, but can you imagine how her heart must have leapt with joy when she would hear the women of Bethlehem call him Yalad ben Naomi, the son that Naomi brought forth. Naomi has been restored here. And to see that, you need to dissect what's going on in the previous verses, verse 14 and 15. The women of Bethlehem bless the name of God on account of what he's done for Naomi. But let's look at their blessing. Verse number 14 then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel, and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This is a very complex, run-on sentence, which deals with a lot of people packed into one sentence. Blessed be the Lord. Okay, they're praising God. Who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Okay, so that might be talking about Boaz. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Well, who's that about? Is that God? Is that Boaz? For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, so now we're talking about Ruth, has given birth to him. Baby. Okay, so you have four things, four persons packed into this. You have God, you have the Redeemer, you have the daughter-in-law, and you have the baby. Who, who are they talking about? Who are they blessing God for, um, for their place in Naomi's life? I think it's all. I think it's everything. God, the Redeemer, Boaz, uh, the daughter-in-law, Ruth, and the baby, Obed. See, I think that's intentional, this lengthy, confusing sentence. It's intentional because the problem at the beginning of the book is that Naomi feels that God's hand has gone out against her. God has not been kind to her. He has dealt bitterly with her. He has brought calamity upon her. And throughout the book, everyone else is experiencing kindness. But Naomi needs to realize it's the kindness of God for her that's on display. Ruth treats Naomi kindly by staying with her. Boaz has been kind to Ruth and redeems her, and by extension, Naomi benefits from that. Naomi, uh, although she was bereaved of her children, she's now a grandmother. Naomi needs to see that the whole thing, the entirety of the blessings, is from the hand of God, the Redeemer, her daughter-in-law, the baby. It's all evidence that God has been kind to Naomi. In the first chapter, Naomi says, call me Mara. In the last chapter, they call the baby the son Naomi bore. In the first chapter, Naomi says, I'm empty because I'm bereaved of my husband and sons, but now her arms are filled with a baby. Now it's been proven that Ruth outweighs the value of seven sons, and she has a redeemer in the family. It's all God who has orchestrated this to be Naomi's restoration. As you think about the sorrows and the heartaches and the frustrations of the year 2020, do you see God's hand through it all? 2020 was rough on all of us, but did you see God throughout it in your life? You know, when we began this year at church, I know for me, it began with such hope and a positive outlook. I would be beginning my second year of full-time work at Woodside Community Church. I had spent a large part of 2019 figuring out and solving some major operational and financial issues. At the end of that year, we'd hired Pastor Mike. We were in better shape than we had been in a long time. We had various projects lined up to complete. We had a great budget meeting at the beginning of the year. We had a great business meeting. Remember when the fire department came and uh, rescued Miss uh, Linda? What a blessing that Sunday was, and we had a great business meeting after. And then we heard those words, those six words which will live in infamy forever, 15 days to slow the spread. 
and everything came crashing down, it seemed. 15 days, but here we are nine months later. But can you see the kindness of God in 2020? How has he worked in your life this year? Have you grown closer to the Lord this year? Is your heart softer and more humble and more repentant this year? Have you managed to conquer old sins that long plagued you? I know some of you have. I know some of you have a greater hunger for the word of God and for doctrine this year. Have you prayed more this year? Have you gotten to know people in this church who you did not know well before? Are you a better evangelist than you were before? Julia and Marina, I know that you are. Sharon, I know that your heart is broken this year, but you know that God has not left off his kindness towards you. How do you perceive the kindness of God in your life? Or are you checked out? Are you self-isolating and seething in bitterness and frustration with the Lord and consuming way too much Netflix and you're oblivious to the hand of God all around your life in 2020? Repent. Do you turn back? We can turn back to the Lord because Ruth and Boaz had a baby. We'll end with that last point. Point number five, the lineage of Boaz and Ruth. Verse 18, now these are the generations of, of, of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered, fathered King David. See, the book of Ruth, probably written by Samuel, serves as grand purpose in biblical history. It's a bridge from the judges to King David. The book of Ruth begins in the period of the judges and it ends with King David. It's a defense of David as the rightful king of Israel. Why? Because after Saul died, it was evidently difficult for some groups to accept David as king. Ruth is a defense of the lineage of David and establishes his right to be anointed and coronated as king over Israel. And this point is so important for us because God makes a covenant with David and God promises to David that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ultimately, the redemption needed by Ruth and Naomi was more than could have been obtained through Boaz and the elders of Israel and the women of Bethlehem, for they needed a redeemer too. Though Boaz, through Boaz and Ruth comes the son of David, who is Christ the Lord. Without the book of Ruth, people can cast aspersions on the lineage of Jesus Christ. There are five women listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ruth is one of them. And they all have some kind of scandal, some kind of spurious origin. And you could cast an aspersion on the lineage of Christ. But the word of God goes through great lengths to give you the backstory of each of those women. And those women are Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary. And the word of God tells us the backstory of all of them. Ruth had to cleave to her mother-in-law and go to Bethlehem, which is a city of David, by the way. Ruth had to go glean in Boaz's field. She had to appeal to Boaz to redeem her. Boaz and Ruth had to be married, and Ruth had to get pregnant and bear Obed. And Obed had to be the father of Jesse, and Jesse had to be the father of David, who was anointed king by Samuel. So that when Saul died, David became king. And God made a covenant with David. And nearly a thousand years after David, in Bethlehem, in Judah, of the royal line of King David, was born the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, the son of God, who took on real humanity and a real body as a real descendant of David and Ruth and Boaz. Born of the Virgin Mary, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the son of David, lived a perfectly righteous and sinless life in our place, and then died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. He ascended back to his Father in heaven where he is preparing a place for us. Do you ever think about that? That standing beside the Father's throne in heaven for you, it's not just, just some magical entity, some spirit or some fireball or some beam of light. It is a man standing there for you that once upon a time in, he shared 
DNA with Ruth and Boaz and King David. There is a man awaiting us, making intercession for us in heaven. He has taken on human flesh. Ruth is a story of earthly redemption. Boaz redeemed Ruth from her social condition, from her poverty, from her widowhood. But Christ, the descendant of Ruth, redeems us out of our spiritual condition, out of our sin, out of our alienation from God. Paul says to Titus, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the, of the great God and our Savior, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He continues in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Boaz redeemed Ruth with the sacrifice of his material resources. Christ redeemed us by his death and shed blood. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. For as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your, from your vain life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Revelation, the angels praise the Son of God, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. As you look towards 2021, as we forget the year 2020, I would hope and I would pray that as if we look back on 2020, we'd be able to see the kindness of God in it because he has not left you without a redeemer. He has given us Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, thank you for uh, Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess the real humanity of Christ. We believe in the deity of Christ and we believe in the humanity of Christ. We believe that he, that your son came in flesh, that he was a real man. He shared DNA with Ruth and Boaz and David. And we know that as a man, he could stand in our place and redeem us from our sins. Lord, whatever our heartache and frustration and sorrow of 2020, Lord, we, we pray that um, as we go into the next year, that we would remember that you are our redeemer, that you will never leave us and forsake us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.